Hey, um, it's me, Alex. Um, what's what's going on? Um, yeah, I I had I had a I had a conversation, um, with someone earlier this week. Oh, that's some, I don't know why I said someone. I had a conversation with a close friend of mine who listens to the podcast and, um, they told me something interesting and that was that, uh, I, I kind of knew this already, but, um, I, when I do this introductory bit, I kind of do it, I aim it at someone who already knows about me and who all already knows about the podcast and who already knows what I'm trying to do here. So, um, I guess it's good for the person who knows what's going on, but for the, for like the random person, the person who hasn't listened to the podcast before and who doesn't know me and who doesn't know what this is about, I guess previous episodes might sound really strange because in the first like few minutes, there's just me talking about this stuff without actually saying what the podcast is going to be about. And then there's this sudden change of pace when it gets to the interview, whatever, whatever. Maybe you like it. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe you're someone who doesn't know me at all. And you've listened to the book, the, uh, an episode in the past and it's been good. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe I should try and outline more of what each episode is going to be, is actually going to be about, um, before I begin and try and be more, uh, I don't know, objective, neutral, um, I'm not sure, um, yeah, anyway, um, if this is your first time listening, um, welcome, my name's Alex, this is, this is my podcast, um, it's a podcast about, uh, politics, ethics, identity, belonging, purpose, um, and pretty much any other, uh, um, pretty much anything else. Uh, and everything else, um, which is kind of problematic, but also really nice because it means that when I email people to ask them to come onto the show, I can be like, yeah, that's like my podcast is about your area of expertise. And they're like, wow, that's so unusual. And I'm like, yeah. And then I email someone else who's from a completely different background. I'm like, hey, my area, my podcast is on your area of expertise. And then all of these people, all of these academics are flattered because there's this um, person, me, who's interested in their work. No, no. Um, but it, it's kind of like that. Anyway, um, if, if you want to know a bit more about the podcast, there's an introduction thing. Like if you scroll all the way down to the first episode that I released, it's an introduction to the podcast. Um, although I guess the kind of the tone and the direction has changed as things always do. So it's hard to kind of outline what the purpose of something is going to be before you actually do it. Um, and have that purpose accurately reflect what you've actually done. So yeah, I guess, um, now where I'm at is, uh, yeah, I I think, I think I should probably do a second introduction, (laughs) which is kind of funny. Um, but yeah, um, um, yeah, I, I suppose I should, there are a few things that I like to do before, uh, every before the interview or the episode actually begins and that is I like to thank the people who support the podcast on Patreon um I know this is like a convention in many podcasts like every I guess podcast um that has an option to for people to become patrons of it the person who 
makes the podcast takes the time to thank the people who um make who who support it um and maybe psychologically um you hear so much of this of this kind of thanking of people who support the podcast um and maybe it doesn't really i'm not sure maybe maybe like publicly thanking people um is just kind of a convention um but i guess for me um uh when when i like it, it means it means a lot to me when people um become patrons of the podcast because it means that um i i can i i can keep going i can keep making the podcast i can afford to spend more time working on it um so yeah to steph who became a patron recently um thank you thank you very much um it really it really means very very much to me because yeah i um i need i need support to keep this going so thank you um if you enjoy the podcast um if this is the first time you've listened to the podcast and the past five minutes have been so insightful and enlightening um that you'd like to um support the podcast uh please do that um you can do that in two ways uh you can use patreon if you don't know what patreon is um it's a platform that allows you to become a patron of someone's podcast that means every time i release an episode um i guess you pledge a little bit it doesn't mean you have to do that every week you just fill out a form and then yeah whatever um it's done for you um but yeah think about like for people who 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 are long time listeners um if the podcast is meaningful for you, for you um and and supporting it is something you can afford um have a think about have a think about it because i think uh we we really ought to change the culture around becoming patrons of of uh things that we enjoy and like it may sound like i'm saying that because I'm trying to convince you to give me your money, but really, like, I, I'm not, um, I, like, one thing that, that I, we speak, that I speak about with, um, Sanjay, who is the, the professor of ethics who I interviewed, um, in this episode, one thing that we spoke about was the, um, an expectation that people of our generation have for immediate, uh, and free gratification, um, and that is a consequence of, many things um it's a consequence of neoliberalism um a consequence of the commodification of everything and having many having pretty much everything available to be purchased um but then also a consequence of things like youtube and um uh kind of competing versions of things which are initially free but then i don't know you have to pay um and like you can pirate things and whatever um and like well i guess my point is that like there needs to be greater a greater socialized protection of people who create things that others enjoy um and yeah while it's great like this podcast is free obviously it always will be um one decision that i made is that i never want to have an ad um so I will never have an ad. And that means that, yeah, I'm relying on your support. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's my little, uh, um, 
yeah discussion of why you should become a patron if you enjoy it um i have a website you can go on the website www.alex.co obviously alex is spelled a-l-e-k-s if you don't know that by now um i don't really know what to say to you but i guess well done that's that's pretty cool um and yeah as usual send me a message please send me something say hi tell me what you liked about the episode tell me um who you would like me to interview in the future if there's anyone cool who you know anywhere in the world um and especially in london because that's where i am at the moment let me know and i'll try and get in contact with them and uh try to sort out an interview um yeah anyway uh today's discussion today's interview was with sanjay a professor of a reader they have this term in the uk reader um a reader of artificial intelligence um he he knows a lot about ai and the ethics around it and formal logic we didn't talk too much about formal logic which is probably uh a relief because formal logic is pretty uh frightening stuff um um sorry sanjay i'm that's not that's not a personal attack (laughs) um uh, yeah, anyway, um, here's the, here's the interview, and, uh, enjoy it. Goodbye. Hey, so today, I'm here with Sanjay. How are you, Sanjay? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Alex. Oh, hey, thanks for coming on. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, we just had this long conversation, which wasn't being recorded, um, and I feel like a lot of it would have been very informative but hopefully i'm sure we'll kind of get onto that kind of stuff but for starters um what what do you do what what kind of what are you up to at the moment so i'm a, a reader uh, my official title is reader in, in in artificial intelligence uh at king's college london in the department of informatics so basically i kind of do a mixture of research in well formal logic um, um, and do some research in the ethics and philosophy of artificial intelligence. And I teach these subjects as well. So it's kind of a, a mix of teaching and research and, unfortunately, a lot of administration as well. Oh, but that's you know, always that's the, case the price right? you pay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, okay. And this is, this is one of the great topics of our time, um, of the 21st century, the, the development of artificial intelligence um and it seems like there has been a lot of development of artificial intelligence and the ethics and politics are kind of lagging behind and trying to catch up so i guess the first question i'll ask you is um what what do we need to be worried about in terms of ai um yeah or what are you worried about in terms of ai yeah, um, so I think what AI has it will do is pose fundamentally unique and new challenges to the human race. That sounds very a very grand statement, but the way I would put it is we've had a number of revolutions throughout the history of mankind. I'm talking about the Industrial Revolution, which changed the nature of human society in fundamental ways, as did the, the Tech Revolution, of the 20th century. I think these are going to be dwarfed in terms of their impact on humanity by the AI revolution. And I think we're beginning to see the seeds of that AI revolution being being sown now. 
And the reason why I think it may have much more dramatic changes on what it is to be human and the nature of, uh, of, of the very way in which human society is constituted and the relations between humans is that unlike other technologies which have always been in a sort of slave-master relationship to humans, the AIs of the future will potentially be autonomous and make decisions for themselves, decisions on our behalf. And I think this is radically going to change the way in which we as humans function and the way in which we interact with technologies. So actually the dangers will arise. What I see the main concerns are the very arise because the AIs of the future are starting to make decisions on behalf of humans. Mm. We're already seeing that now in terms of the way in which kind of AI algorithms will might make maybe making decisions about what to target us with when it comes to kind of online our online experience. Mm. Uh, what information we are we, is revealed to us based upon decisions made by these algorithms. But then going forward, the AIs of the future, as they become more and more advanced, will start making decisions that are much more, that are affecting our everyday lives, uh, as in outside of the virtual or online world. And going even further into the future, there's a possibility of sentient or conscious <laughs> AI when they become conscious. This is a controversial topic, but as with any of these kind of long-term developments, the very fact that even though there may be a small possibility that, for example, let's say conscious AI comes into being, the impact is so significant mm. that we need to take it seriously. Mm. So, so I think you, you can, you, you're already beginning to see the impact of AI in terms of making decisions on our behalf mm. now mm. in an online environment, but that might become have more radical effects on what it is to be human when they start making decisions outside of the online environment. Yeah, right. Um, okay, and I, I am very uncomfortable with the idea of my decision-making being influenced by something that isn't under my control. Um, and obviously, like, I've received many targeted ads that are specific mm -hmm. to things that I like. Um, you know, if I search something on Google, like I wanted to buy new headphones, um, and then on all of my different social media platforms, I was getting ads for different types of headphones. Um, and I guess it's kind of helpful because it means I don't have to go and do all of this research because it's thrown at me. Mm. But things are presented differently and, you know, the ads are all different. Some of them have men smiling, some mm -hmm. have women smiling, some have people with their families and whatever. So, um, yeah, I guess do you – because it's one thing to, it's one thing to be afraid of uh, – having your decision-making influenced. And many of my friends, after me kind of throwing this fear into their lives and being like, you need to be more conscientious with respect to your online privacy, like get a VPN, um, use incognito browser, whatever. Um, do you have any kind of, or like, yeah, do you, do you have any, are you in, are you trying to be in control of, your decision making in that way or do you feel like you've do you feel like you're okay with kind of regulating how you see things on the internet and then how you make decisions can you kind of separate those two things i feel i can i mean um i i uh, i say that i feel like i'm my decisions are not being impacted mm. by this kind of targeted uh, by these filtering algorithms and these uh, targeting me 
but in some sense, that's the way the system works. I mean, it's very insidious. The idea is that it kind of creeps up on you without you really noticing. Mm. There's, there's not really, it's not transparent the extent to which our decisions are being influenced. But I, let me just ask you, to get, to get at, at this question, let me mm. ask you why you feel, what makes you uncomfortable about the fact that you're, that these ads are being targeted, that, you're, that your choices are being governed, not by your, well, I'm kind of almost giving the answer in the question, but okay, I'll, I'll put it on the table. I mean, is it, is what makes you uncomfortable the idea that you are not free to choose, that in some sense the choices are constrained by another another entity that's making that, that that's offering you certain choices. Hmm. Is, is that is that the does that make what makes you uncomfortable? Yeah, that, that's part of it. Um, I think one part is what you said. So there's someone in a room somewhere coming up with a new ad um, for something that I probably don't need, and that is going to be you know kind of subtly slipped into my visual field over and over again until it kind of forms a desire for the product or something. So there's that. But then I think the more insidious thing is that it's the second thing that you spoke about. So kind of the freedom to choose. Um, and I think my main fear is that so I, I like to believe that there is something that it means to be me. Um, and I like to believe that once upon a time, and even hopefully today, it's possible to access what it means to be me. And I don't know what that means at this point, but hopefully, you know, over the course of my life, I will be able to think about things um, and I will be able to engage with myself um, in, and, try and, and try and identify kind of what it, my essence or whatever, um, if, if that's actually a thing. So at the, at the moment, I like to believe that that's, that's something that there is. There is like something that it means to be me. And I feel like targeted advertising and this influence on my decision-making is probably changing what it means to be me because I'm no longer the person who doesn't desire headphones. I didn't, there wasn't something in me which decided that headphones was something that I wanted. There was something exogenous, something external, which made it a priority, made it a preference. So I feel like there's a part of my identity that's being formed without my permission. Um, and there's nothing I can do about it unless I'm blinkered and I have earplugs in all the time. Um, yeah, so, yeah. I, think, I don't know if that answers yeah, no, your question, that, that, but that, 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 that does. I think that gets, in some sense, to the heart of the issue. Um, let, let's say, let, let, let's just take just targeted advertising. Yeah. So essentially what targeted advertising, what these filtering algorithms are doing is they're saying, look, um, you know, there are a certain number of choices that are available to you. Mm. And as it were, we are going to restrict the landscape of your choices. We are going to decide the landscape of your choices. And I think what why we are why we are uncomfortable with this idea is that it's partly related to the way is to our um, the fact that we we value this notion of free will. Hmm. We can get into an argument about free will. I mean, free will 
arguably in in the in the sense that many people understand is illusory i think what free will really amounts to is not so much the actual existence of some freely choosing subject but rather that you have a broad landscape of choices mm. from which where well, you can decide that that the decision amongst those choices is still ultimately determined by a kind of long chain of cause and effect what i think what 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 really matters is that we do not feel as if our landscape of choice is being manipulated by another for the gain of another and i think that's the heart of the matter that that these filtering algorithms are essentially manipulating the landscape of choices for the monetary and financial gain of others mm. um and i think that's really cuts to the heart of the matter and of course this notion of having a sort of of us determining the landscape of our choices to the extent that we can is also tied in very much with our sense of identity and who we are so i think that's kind of um in some sense that's what makes us so uncomfortable about this idea of 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 this targeted advertising and these filtering algorithms um subana shubhav i apologize if i've pronounced mispronounced a name has has quite recently written uh, a very interesting book on 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 this topic uh, called the age of surveillance capitalism and the idea there is you know that whereas in the past um things that were not commodified commodified but were sort of out there and freely available become over time sort of part of the market commodified so at one at one time land was something we could freely settle on that became part of the real estate that was kind of incorporated into the quote unquote real estate market mm. labor similarly became you know our our work our toil became commodified in the form of labor and so she argues that the that in that these this in this new age of surveillance capitalism the very contents of our imagination are becoming commodities <laughs> to be bought and sold on a behavioral futures market so we make certain decisions um which are recognized through the way in which we click on certain ads etc and this is behavioral data that is then sold on by Google and others uh to third parties who use that data to then predict what what choices we will make and then and then restrict the landscape of our choices and and manipulate us into certain directions mm. the uh, i don't know if you remember the pokemon go yeah so app, that was yeah. that was kind of at one extreme where actually it was affecting not just the choices we make in the online environment but in the physical yeah, environment yeah. because they were basically put uh, getting mcdonald's and other companies to have characters getting these companies to pay for characters to be put in their, in their shops, shops stuff, to increase yeah. the footfall yeah and again it's very uncomfortable the idea that you be manipulated right mm. um it's again the, the the landscape of your choices is being determined by others for commercial gain mm. but going beyond that um we've also seen and the jury is out to what extent our political choices can be manipulated. So so thus far we've been talking about sort of choices, you know, commercials or what you buy and okay, you might say, well, I don't I mean for the sake I trade off the convenience for 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 the for the fact that the landscape of my choices is being shaped by others for commercial gain. It's a fair trade off. I think when it becomes really serious is of course when our political decisions are manipulated manipulated where you're not buying a product, the decisions you're making are who to vote for. Mm. 
that fundamentally, I think, can undermine democracy. Mm. It's it's still the jury is out as to whether this targeted manipulation of voters really does have an impact on their political choices. Mm. But the direction of travel uh, is such that one day it may substantially affect the way we we, we make our choices. Mm. And that's certainly the aim mm. of um, of many of these kind of uh, companies like. Cambridge Analytica, who are kind of, I mean, that's that's that, that's their aim. So I think Wonderful that's the people. second <laughs> second tier of worry, if you will, mm. if you like. And then just to kind of maybe just to um, continue on, on this this topic, um, I just wanted to bring up one example. I I recall, I think it was Microsoft uh, in, in in Australia. I think there was an incident where some document. Um, sent out by Microsoft to companies boasted about the fact that they could tell from online behavior, online clicking, and, and when adolescents were feeling particularly vulnerable and low. Wow. And suggesting that this would be a good time to target these... these Various the, the, these, 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 yeah. you know, Because... You know, you you somebody, an adolescent feeling particularly... Not just adolescents, of course, I think, we're, let's say to some extent, we are all... Uh, vulnerable mm. to retail therapy providing mm-hmm. a kind of uh, an alleviation from our anxiety. Mm. But, you know, were, the idea was, look, you know what? We know when these kids are being feeling vulnerable. That's when you target them. Mm. That's when they'll be more ready to click on that buy button, get a serotonin hit, which will kind of alleviate the anxiety yeah, and, yeah. and the feelings of kind of, of loneliness and depression mm. that they're feeling. And that strikes me as, as particularly worrisome mm. because... It goes against the the. It's basically feeding into this ethic whereby what makes us happy is material acquisition yeah. and consumption, mm. and this it's almost like that ethic is can be it, there's, there's a possibility that that ethic, rather than undermining that ethic, which clearly would be the way to go, um, and this is not just some kind of new age kind. Mm. Of, I mean, we understand this from cognitive psychology and from science that you know material acquisition doesn't lead to necessarily on yeah, a certain yeah. level yeah. to increase in well-being but this is possibly a a, a route to amplifying mm. and uh, in fact bolstering that ethic mm. rather than going in the other direction mm. so well that's, yeah that's yeah. i think all of that is um yeah so i think my fundamental concern which is that like there is something that it means to be me which is being changed i think all of that is present in all of these on all of the things that you spoke about. So I think um, the the thing about targeted advertising to adolescents by Microsoft, um, I think what is so concerning about that, obviously there's the fact that um, that I'm, I don't doubt that Microsoft actually does have information which would allow them to predict when people are feeling more vulnerable. Um, I read this article about how, oh, the light went off. Um, um, how uh, a a kind of um, not a massive search engine like Google Chrome but a big search engine was um, selling information to healthcare to insurance companies in the US which um, was they, they were saying that they could predict with incredible accuracy um, well, they could kind of 
gauge, they could tell based on the way people's cursors moved around the screen, whether or not they were having some kind of onset of Parkinson's. And so they were selling this to insurance companies, um, which would then up the premiums. And they would say, we know that, you know, when you get the Parkinson's diagnosis, the insurance company knows five years beforehand because this browser has already informed them. And I think the horrifying thing in all of this for me, obviously there is the massive abuse of, um, of things that are happening within us that we may not necessarily have grasp over. Like you might not know that you're feeling that the reason why you're scrolling Instagram is because you're feeling low. But if Instagram knows that and then they abuse that, I think for me the great the greatest injustice is that we aren't being informed about things that are happening to us, but we are having those things taken and we are having our moods commodified. Um, and that probably fits into the narrative of the age of surveillance capitalism, where I guess, you know, in late capitalism, neoliberal capitalism, the objective is to commodify everything. Um, and yeah, I feel, I feel like there needs, well, let me, let me ask you this. Um, how, how on earth are we going to stop? that kind of behavior like Microsoft knowing when people are when adolescents are feeling vulnerable and then selling that information or you know new um, browsers selling information about people's uh, you know mouse navigation patterns to health insurance companies um, because yeah in I guess in in a neoliberal society um, everything is privatized and there is there are many degrees of – there's no system of checks and balances between the legislature and the company itself. So, yeah, I guess – but this comes at a cost, right? Because when there are – I guess, you know, the neoliberal would argue when there aren't – when there are checks and balances, progress isn't as astronomical. It isn't as magnificent. Um, so how – the question is how one um, – can we hold, like, how do, how, yeah, how do we stop this from happening? Um, if, if you think that it's something, so I guess, yeah, you, you were saying before that the jury's out on whether our political persuasions are being molded by Cambridge Analytica and whatever, but um, if there is a risk that they are, should we, like, should we do something? Should a government intervene? I mean, I mean in the case of the political manipulation... <laughs> As I said, the jury is out. I mean, there, there's, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the that that at some point in the future we are our, our political choices may actually be manipulated because mm. that's the direction of travel. That's the aim. That's mm. the intention. Um, and um, at, at, for example, also with the, with the um, with the mouse movement and Parkinson's. I mean, at, at some sense, what we're seeing there is also that. Uh, there are there are other parties that might have a better understanding of us. Mm. I'm talking now from a medical, but you can that's maybe across the board than we do of ourselves, which kind of is kind of fundamentally undermines the sense of uh, of of identity and privacy, the notion that our experiences are our own experiences. But now coming back to the question, what can we do? I think um, I mean I'm quite hopeful. I mean I'm optimistic, partly because I think 
there's greater public awareness of these issues, partly because legislators are beginning to take this more seriously. You are beginning to see some movement in, in the kind of political circles, at levels of governments, in terms of holding these companies to account. Well, one thing happened here, right? Like, um, whenever you go on a website, they have to present you with your option to accept or decline cookies. Mm. Is that is that yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because we yeah. don't have that in Australia. Like, you have to go into the settings mm. and then change, like, what kind of footprint you leave on the website. But I think in the UK, you're presented with your an option to either accept you know, to leave a lot of metadata or to mm. decline it. Um, and I mean, that's something. That is something. Although, although, of course, I'm sure, like many people, um, and perhaps you, I'll ju- I just click yes. Yeah, yeah well, everyone. I mean, it's really, it's a box-ticking exercise, yeah. right? It's to, just to say, hey, look, we're being transparent. Um, I, I, I actually think that we need something a bit more, let's say, drastic. Um, and I think there may be, well, apart from the fact of increasing public awareness. Public awareness of these issues and making people realise that there is more at stake than just a trade-off with convenience, as it were. That it's more that that the price of convenience is not a price worth paying will will hopefully mean that there'll be more of a kind of underground sort of resistance that blossoms into a more wide-scale public uh, rejection of the of of what is effectively a business model, mm. which is this kind of behavioural prediction business model, where they'll gather the data, sell it onto other parties who use that data to make you better consumers for their products. So, I think we begin. I don't know. I get the sense that it, amongst some circles, it's it seemed to be cool to get yourself off Facebook. It's this kind of act of a rebellion. It's a kind of say, look, I'm I'm. I'm not part of the herd. So I'm optimistic that maybe from such small seeds could, you know, that, that a kind of more widespread rebellion or, mm. or, or, or resistance could, could, could grow. Mm. So that's one thing, I think, you know, from the public. But also, look, I think it's just we, at a governmental level, there needs to be this, uh, a fundamental challenge to this business model. It's not the case that the the only way these companies like Google and my Apple not interestingly not Apple mm. to their credit mm. who who um, who don't who don't abide by this business model but uh, but many of Amazon um, Google Microsoft actually it's not the case that the only way they can make money is to is to buy into this kind of business model of selling on behavioral data. There are other ways. There are alternative business models. It may mean that the profits are cut. It may be they need to rethink the business model. And that rethinking, reshaping of the business models uh, needs in some sense to be encouraged, if not enforced, uh, by policy and by, by governments making, enforcing changes, to, you know, enforcing them to rethink their business models. I think, so I think it needs to be both at the political level and from a kind of from the bottom up, from the public up level, and and it may be that we what, what, what that the public need to engage with the politicians to say, look, you need to do something about these business models. Um, mm. Yeah. So, uh, I, I'm kind of cautiously optimistic, because, okay. partly because, or, or rather primarily because there are alternatives. Mm. It's not we can still we can have our cake and eat it too. Mm. 
right? As in, we can have all the conveniences. Although it's a funny expression to have our cake and eat it because <laughs> if you have your cake, what would you do but eat it? I suppose it anyway. Put it in the fridge. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I I think I'm not sure I share the same optimism. Um, I, I I can see I can see how something could change. I can see how there could be a grassroots resistance, um, but. I don't know how. I feel like younger generations are the most ensnared in the web of the internet and being online. Um, and I feel like my my gen. I was born in '96. I wasn't raised like I finished high school without a laptop. Um, my mom's a teacher. Every school now has tech everywhere um and so i my concern is that people are going to be fed a life of convenience and they're going to be raised to expect convenience and speed um and like i now i i've thought about this a lot and i've tried to resist kind of these this movement towards wanting everything to be quicker and faster but when the internet's slow you know it ruins my um, my mood, it translates, you know, my yeah, that wheel of death. Yeah, 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 everything falls to pieces. Um, and I feel like I was one of the lucky ones. So I, I was, I didn't grow up entirely dependent with my life entirely revolving around technology. Um, and I feel like now, um, the forces targeted advertising, um, and the institutionalization of technology, meaning it's a feature of kings. Like every class, everything, there's a Moodle, it's all online. A lot of teachings done online, essay submission. Um, it's so hard to live a life. It's, re it's like I don't have Facebook. I'm one of, maybe I'm one of the ones of that strange kind of resistant movement that you were talking about. But that was really taxing to my social life. Um, mm. It meant that I missed out on a lot of social events because people would forget to, I guess my close friends, you know, they would always reach mm -hmm. out, but people who I may not necessarily talk to regularly who would otherwise just see my name because, you know, the algorithm mm. suggests people for you. I, I would be there if I had Facebook, but I'm not. So I've missed out on a lot of things. And it took me a long time to be comfortable with that. And fortunately I've been off Facebook for, I don't know, nearly two years now, 18 months. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's only kind of, it took about a year to be fully comfortable with the idea that mm. this was going to be fatal to my social life because the majority of the rest of the world was still organizing their days through these applications and through these services. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe there needs to be, I'm sure there mm. are already like social media platforms and stuff, which. Um, yeah. I um, mm. So, you know, I, I, I accept that and the fact that, that point and the fact that, of course, you know, especially teenagers today, are unconsciously participating mm. in these kind of online uh, social networks mm. and, and these uh, online environments uh, in a very kind of unconscious way. And their parents can't. Yeah. Because parents don't know tech, no, and they so don't. they can't yeah. be like, hmm. But uh, I think in some sense, I am also you know, very concerned, and I am I, holding back the tide of, 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 of pessimism. Mm. Um, and I equip myself to hold back the tide by reminding myself that there 
that there are alternative, A, that there are alternative ways of making money for these companies, mm. and B, that there are um, moves afoot at, at, at governmental level and an appreciation of the, the concerns at government governmental level. So given that there are alternative business models and there are moves afoot at governmental level, um, I would rather adopt uh, an optimistic attitude mm. than a fatalistic one. Yeah, yeah. In fact, if I were to adopt a fatalistic attitude, nothing for sure yeah. would, would change. Or, or rather, not I. I mean, mm. if we were all mm, mm. to adopt a fatalistic attitude, then not then change for sure change would never uh, change for the better would, ne- would never you know mm. would never be on the horizon mm. it's it's you know sometimes it's unfortunate uh, there's uh, that you know so there's this kind of you see this sometimes in when you're talking about in, in in conversing or talking about political issues or social issues that you know that's just the way it is and this is a kind of the worst is, reply it's the worst <laughs> reply because it's such a it, it's 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 it, Encompasses such a fatalistic attitude. Well, well, if that's the way it is, well, that means things can never change. Mm. It's um, you know this Panglossian kind of mm. all is for the best in this, the best of all possible worlds. This is just a a, a an easy way out mm. of basically standing up and making trying to make, and trying to make a distance, mm. a difference. Yeah, I think this that what you said reminds me of. Um, so I, I my friend and I uh, ran a podcast before this one. Um, similar idea we interviewed academics and one of the people we interviewed was a behavioral psychologist cognitive psychologist kind of like sam harris but not sam harris um and one thing he said was that it seems like uh humans will always choose the path of least mental resistance um and in this situation I think the path of least mental resistance is the fatalistic path because there's absolutely no resistance needed. You totally acquiesce and then we're fucked. We're totally fucked. Um, But yeah, I'm with you. Like I, I understand that there could be a business model which doesn't rely on um, massive uh, unethical gestures of, you know, learning about people's behavior yeah, before they surveilling do. Our, surveilling our very yeah. inner experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that there could be. Um, but yeah, I guess it's just a matter of undoing what's already already been done, which unfortunately will require immense effort. Um, but you know, we do these kind of things. Uh, our our species, mm. we make big changes. Um, so it's obviously it's not impossible. Mm. But um, yeah. Okay, so another topic, this is a slight change, of course, but another thing that I wanted to talk to you about was, um, uh, how are you going time-wise? Are you all good? I'm fine. Okay. I'm okay. happy to. Okay, keep going. Um, another thing that I wanted to talk about was um, the, so Ray, Ray Kurzweil, Kurzweil, do you know that guy? The Google? Yeah. He, he talks about the singularity a lot, and the singularity is the point at which AI will overtake the human being in terms of its capacity to engage with the world. Mm. Not just because obviously AI has overtaken us in chess and lots of other mm. things. Um, pattern recognition, it seems to be a lot better. But um, yeah, first question I'll ask is, is that possible? Could we develop an AI which engages with the world better or as good as we do. 
I mean, my view is, in principle, it is possible. Um, so what we're witnessing at present is that we have AI specialized for certain tasks, be it chess, be it AlphaGo, be it face recognition. Um, you see more and more um, uh, diagnostics when it comes to uh, uh, diagnosing um, radiology scans. They are outperforming humans in those specialized tasks and not just outperforming them, radically mm. outperforming them. So that's all well and good. But really the, the, as it were, the holy grail, quote unquote, for AI researchers is to develop, to develop artificial general intelligence, which means just as humans are capable of engaging in a wide variety of tasks, not just playing chess, but making coffee, diagnosing a scan. So artificial general intelligence would have intelligence across a broad range of tasks in the way humans do. And given our current experience of, exp of, of superhuman expertise in individual tasks, there's no reason in principle why, why this artificial general intelligence can't then be super, have super, you know, be, be as it were, super intelligent across all tasks. So in principle, yes, um, I, do th I do envisage the possibility not just of artificial general intelligence, but then the subsequent development of superintelligence. Um, so, you know, you might have, pick a number. Six. A, 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 well, I, I was going to think of a much, much larger number, <laughs> like you know, uh, 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 an AI Fox. with an IQ of 16,225, okay. for example. Um, but, and and there's, there's one more reason why I think that this is a distinct possibility. Assuming we get artificial general intelligence, that is intelligence across many, all tasks, and mm -hmm. by the way, this is not universally accepted by AI researchers. Um, but I would say the majority of AI researchers, according to various polls, anticipate at least w within 70 to 100 years, we will have artificial general intelligence. Once we get artificial general intelligence, one can imagine an AGI, artificial general intelligence, um, being in the position of an AI researcher itself. And so improving itself. Yeah. And this improved version of itself improves that improve and so on and you get this recursive self-improvement this fueled by the fact that the hardware and software of AI have uh, huge advantages over the neural wetware in our, of our brains that's effectively analogous to software and the neural hardware they have massive speed of computation advantages uh, the ability to duplicate copies of the neural wetware, the, so the software, um, the the uh, massive storage, increase in storage capacities, uh, the, um, uh, the, the access to information uh, from all around the world. So fueled by the software uh, and informational and hardware advantages, then imagine the recursive self-improvement. Yeah, you'll you'll have an intelligence explosion. You'll wow. end up with, with the reason why they why many like Ray, Ray Kurzweil and also uh, um, Udovsky and Bostrom. I sometimes mispronounce their names. Consider it the possibility of a singularity. There's two understandings of the word singularity because there is this. This is a bit of a digression, but there is this concern or this expectation that one 
super AI may gain strategic advantage over all other projects to develop AGI and super AI. And so may there may be kind of, it may well be that we just have one super AI that's, as it were, preventing other projects from developing super AIs. As in, like, deciding yeah. to stifle it? Or? Yeah, deciding to oh, stifle it, yeah. Wow. Because it would be to the competitive and strategic yeah, yeah, advantage yeah. of yeah. that super AI. And I think this is, this the 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 advent of AGI and and then, so once we have AGI, it's, it's, it's much more feasible, in other words, to think of the trajectory from AGI to, to super AI than from where we are now to AGI. Yeah, right. right. Um, because once, what on earth would an AGI look like? Yeah, or? I mean, it's, 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 we are still a long way from an AGI. Mm. Um, so that's why um, it's, sometimes it feels much, much more of a challenge to get mm. to AGI from where we are now. It feels... Uh, it seems to me uh, less unlikely, as it were, that we would get from AGI to super. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And once we do that, then we have uh, what's called the value alignment problem mm. or the value loading problem. Mm. And we have a number of uh, academic uh, institutions around the world devoting huge intellectual and financial resources to addressing this issue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Nick Bostrom at the Future mm. Humanities Institute, mm. you've got... Uh, people at MIT, uh, OpenAI. I mean, so you've got some serious people looking at this problem. Um, and we can talk about why that is of particular concern. Mm. Mm. I mean, if yeah. you like. Um, yeah, I, I'd really love to. Um, another person who I was fortunate enough to speak to was Peter Singer. Oh, yeah. Um, and I asked him that very question. Um, when there comes a time where there is super AI, um, how, well, what... What morals, what kind of ethics do we imbue it with? Um, and he gave, you won't like his answer, mm. he gave this really pessimistic answer and said like, um, well, it will be, so I kind of, I asked him in a slightly different way. I said, um, if there's a self-driving car, which we have, um, and uh, it, it obviously needs to be programmed to do something in a trolley problem situation. Mm -hmm. So... Does it, if there is, if it's driving down a street and there's a pedestrian jaywalking, does it continue driving and kill the pedestrian? Let's say it can't brake um, quick enough. Or does it swerve to the left and kill a group of five? Um, what do we do? And Peter Singer said, um, obviously, you know, you, like the utility, because he's a utilitarian, he says, you know, you want to maximize pleasure, well-being, so unfortunately that one person dies. But then he said, but I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think there is going to be competition between the big car manufacturers who will put different, who will put competing AI products with competing ethical codes systems out. So Volvo will be, will prioritize the life of the driver. So if the driver if the self-driving car is put in a situation where due to someone else's error, there's, let's say, a truck drives in front of the self-driving car and if the car hits the truck and kills the, dr the driver or swerves and kills five people, it swerves and kill five, kills five people. Um, and then there'll be a Toyota car which doesn't but once is a, runs a purely um, a hedonistic Benthamite calculus and will say, 
you know, there's one life versus five. We choose one life. Um, but then he said, obviously, the one thing you can't do is allow the AI to um, to have any access to anyone's personal information. Because if it did, if it could run some kind of calculus based on what a person's life was like. so What their worth. What their worth yeah, is, yeah. yeah. Are they, I don't know, like maybe the person programming this was a real elitist mm. and they were like, okay, I think the, the life of a doctor is worth more than the life of um, uh, a postman. And so... In that preferentially yeah, color, but yeah, 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 yeah. I think I think he's right about the uh, privacy. I mean, I think you would have to take a non. Uh, yeah. the, you would have to assume no difference in moral worth between the lives of the of the people at stake hmm. in the situation. But the, uh, Peter has an interesting point. Of course, as a utilitarian, perhaps he might. He, he, he perhaps. It's a bit more nuanced, um, the, 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 the straightforward trolley-like calculation, because in this case, let's say, let's say that the, you've got a decision, uh, the cars to make a decision, um, uh, swerve to the right and kill five, or, or continue moving straight on hitting a brick wall and killing the driver. Mm. Right, so there's a kind of straightforward utilitarian calculation would say, yeah, you, you carry on straight straightforward and, and uh, straight hit the wall and kill the driver of course and and, and in fact in this there's this online uh, sort of uh, website called the moral machine okay um it's developed at mit by a friend of mine and 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 this it it, it it's it, it's got millions and millions of responses to all these different kinds of trolley like scenarios but in the context of a self-driving car oh right and of course the majority of people will um will um, choose, according to the utilitarian calculus, the, the right thing and, mm. and say, no, no, you can just kill, kill the driver. Mm. Actually, interestingly enough, it's a very interesting website. I, I have a look at some of the publications because what, what, they, what, they have been sh- what they're doing is they're showing cultural variations in the way we make like, these calculations. Wow. And, and for example, um, people in more Asian countries are more likely are less likely to kill the elderly than than the young and that's partly that is said to be a reflection of the fact that they have more they revere more the the wisdom of age let's say but you know that's that's isn't it that's an, that's an aside but going back to the going back to the peter singer and the kind of utilitarian calculation it's also the case i think from the moral machine people working on the moral machine but i'm not sure i think they also concluded upon questioning people but i might be wrong about this that when asked whether you would buy a car that preferentially killed the driver rather than the fire, they said no. So you could make a utilitarian argument that if the algorithms were so designed that you would have a reduction in self-driving cars. Mm. Weigh that up with the fact that how often in all the billions of car journeys that have taken place over... Since automobiles appeared on the roads, how many times were those encounters? How many times were the situations really encountered? Mm. You could well argue that the the downside of the reduced of the reduction in, in in sales of autonomous vehicles in terms of increased fatalities generally because they are, autonomous vehicles are much safer mm. would, would clearly yeah. outweigh the downside of killing the five rather than the one. Mm. 
So you could, again, under the utilitarian calculation, it may well be that you say, well, the algorithm will kill the five rather than the one, no matter how unpalatable that might seem at first. Now, there's a secondary issue about different companies making different decisions. And that's where I think you have to have some kind of governmental uh, edict mm. saying, well, you know, there has to be a trans-corporate, transnational even, because you don't want different countries having uh, yeah. having different... There has to be some yeah, international, ethical standard, yeah, international yeah. ethical standards which these algorithms have to abide by. Mm. Okay. Um, and if... Hmm. If you were to imbue AI with a kind of ethics, what would what kind of ethics would you like? What what would you like them to be like? What what yeah? Like do you? Because you know some people some people fear that if you make them utilitarian, they will realize that the most destructive thing to well being is us, and so it will decide to kill all of us. Um, some people, yeah. Like what what kind of yeah, that's, that's a really hard really, question because really I'm asking question. you to. It's a really difficult question. I mean, but one thing you said before was that this is b- before we actually started recording was that you hope that there is a kind of synergy between AI and humans. Mm. So maybe, yeah, maybe that's what you hope. Yeah, I, I'm yeah, not sure. Look, an enculturation of AI whereby mm. the AIs don't evolve and, and learn independently of human input but rather that they, as children do, grow up, uh, you know, you can get, unfortunately this may go lead down to the road of cultural relativism and mm. who's, but essentially that they, that AIs are integrated into the fabric of human society and that there is a purpose, that there is effort put into creating an environment in which the way they learn is aligned with with human values. Mm. Um now, again, you might say, well, whose values? But look, that's, that question can be asked of human societies independently of AI. So we don't, we, let's not, that's just opens up a whole can of worms or, or Pandora's box. But um, I can give you maybe an example I use in my teaching. So, and, and this is in some sense the problem with this value alignment problem. So you could, uh, Bostrom and others talk about, about the perverse instantiation of goals. So you could give a goal to a, let's say a super AI, so now we're talking about super AI, you, you could give a final goal and it could pursue that goal and achieve that goal without abiding by the intentions and conceptions of what humans meant by that goal. Yeah. So uh, the example I sort of tell my students about is imagine giving a, 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 what's a seemingly benign utilitarian goal of maximizing well-being of humans. The AI might do its research and realize, well, you know, I could change a super AI. I could change the economic circumstances um, in which humans live and so that it maximizes well-being. But it realizes, look, that's actually, um, you know, that, that that's an extremely expensive way and, and not a particularly efficient way of going about things. So then it might think, well, I could manipulate humans into taking some kind of drugs like Soma or the Altoxy type Soma. Mm. But again, there's a real cultural taboo, so it's unlikely that that would get off the ground. And then it it says it it, it might arrive at the conclusion: Ah, I could. Uh, and remember, we're talking about a super AI that might be already insidiously kind of integrated into the kind of social socio technical f- uh, fabric of society. 
I could develop more and more and more sophisticated virtual realities, leveraging the 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 the, the instincts that humans already have, the, the the habits that humans already have to spend more and more time online, online dating, online gaming. Exactly. Um, it, you know, this is, sounds far-fetched, but it, uh, it doesn't have to be the extreme of the matrix. But in other words, developing more and more virtual reality so that more and more people spend time online getting their serotonin hits and their, you know, living the, experiencing the virtual bliss of virtual worlds. Uh, and then, of course, you do get to the kind of matrix scenario or uh, the experience machine of, of uh, I think it's Robert Nozick. Nozick, that's it, yeah. Um, you know, would you, would you, tra- you know, would you, if you were in such a machine, would you, w- w- would you take the option of, 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 of experiencing the virtual bliss of virtual worlds if, while you were in those virtual worlds, you had no idea you were in the virtual yeah, world? Yeah, yeah, if they weren't right. real. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, that's not mm. so far-fetched because, remember, we're talking about super AIs, who are super intelligent, mm. as I described before. So a hallmark of intelligence is psychological manipulation. Mm. So um, it may well be that the AIs are able to m- manipulate humans to do their bidding. Maybe if even if they're contained, to manipulate humans to let them out of their containment, to escape their containment. In some sense, this is the fundamental message of ex machina. Mm. That's really what ex machina is about, is that manipulate psychological manipulation to let the, let the AI out of the box. Mm. So it's not so far-fetched. Now, coming back to your earlier question, what kind of, well, ethic? Well, of course, when I ask my students to show hands, would they want to live in the virtual bliss of virtual worlds? Some put their hands up and say yes, some say no. And then I go into Robert Nozick's arguments. A lot of this resistance to living in the virtual bliss of virtual worlds, virtual worlds you, to some extent, could be said to be rooted in first-person subjective experience of what it is to be a human acting physically in a world rather than hooked up to the matrix or in a kind of experience machine or a brain in a vat. That in turn suggests that when the super AI makes these kinds of decisions, it does so in conjunction with humans. Mm. That you, that actually a possibly optimistic view might be, well, look, these super AIs will be super intelligent in epistemic reasoning, reasoning about what is the case, super intelligent in causal reasoning, reasoning about the causes, the consequences of actions, integrating that with, um, in a utilitarian framework, the, 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 the values that certain actions have as they are panned out, as they, as they are grounded in first-person subjective experience. Mm and reports of first-person subjective experience of well-being, which would be fed into the calculations by the humans. Mm. So you've got this potential leveraging of the superior epistemic and causal reasoning of the machines together with the uh, reports and reasoning about what what constitutes well-being as provided and input into the calculation by the humans. Mm. And some of my research is looking at that. How do you integrate, how do you integrate the reasoning via this exchange of argument and counter-argument to arrive at, at, at potentially, and I'm I, potentially, as I said, um, actually uh, superior moral deliberation. Mm, okay. Um, one, one thing that really interests me about that line of work that you're doing, where you're looking at arguments and counter-arguments, is um, 
One thing that I've thought about a lot has been um, what is most what is the most effective way to communicate. Um, this might not be such a question about as much of a question about AI, more of a question about interpersonal communication. But um, so I guess one of the another uh, crisis of our times is climate change, um, and one thing which doesn't seem to be too effective in terms of communicating the urgency of a need to change people's lifestyles is statistics. Um, maybe we've seen too many statistics about how much damage we've done. Maybe images of Australia are on fire. Maybe you've already seen 500 in the past week. Um, I, I still, to this day, find that each person that I meet has a different way of of receiving and, um, I guess, internalizing things that I say. And so I haven't been able to find, like, that's, that's quite a strange thing to say, but what I mean is that I haven't been able to find a universally uh, applicable conversation style in terms of arguments and counter-arguments, mm -hmm. which leads to changes in uh, understanding or changes in behavior or changes in um, belief. Do you, I guess one question is, do you think there is a kind of um, a way, a system of dialogue which allows information to be successfully communicated? Um, you said before that uh, one thing that, you know, this kind of um, Karl Popper Esque, Popperian um, counter argument, counter argument. One thing that it's directed at is some kind of truth. So, if there is a kind of truth, let's say about climate change, that it's actually happening, and that the world is actually that the well-being of future generations are at risk. Question one: How do we have a conversation about that? With how do you have a conversation with someone? so as to most effectively communicate something which objectively appears to be true. And I guess the second question might inform your answer, but is it a lot easier to do that with AI? To kind of... So when you were talking about mm -hmm. arguments and counter-arguments with AI, I wasn't exactly sure what that would look like because I guess AI, most tech is binary ones and zeros. Mm. I'm not sure what AI is like. Maybe it's different, but um, yeah, I guess you can kind of tell AI what the world is like. You can say grass is green and AI will be like, oh, grass is green. But like with a person, um, yeah. You yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, well, there's actually uh, I'll answer maybe this in, in uh, in two, in, as it were, with two answers. Let's okay. put it this way. Um, the first would be to say that um, let's imagine that the AI um, can, uh, in, a, in a quick time, trawl the web. Let's say, let's say the, the, the climate change, for example. The AI has has the capacity to trawl the web and come up with all arguments for and against. Uh, climate change and it presents these arguments and it demonstrates that you know the arguments against climate change are clearly outweighed and and inferior to the arguments supporting um in, in supporting climate change so um 
it's 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 um the first thing to note is that there are there is some recent work in cognitive psychology suggesting that our capacity for reasoning um evolved in dialogical settings for the pur- purposes of communication and that if left alone if if left as an individual reasoner said let's say gauging the evidence for and against some issue we are disposed by our, uh, our our pre-existing biases to look for arguments that support what we believe and ignore arguments contra to what we believe and in some sense this in fact it's argued by um, Mercia and and Sperbier the, the theory suggests that that this is um this is explained by an evolutionary account of how reasoning evolved that we are disposed to look for arguments that support what we believe and ignore, ignore arguments contrary to what we believe. Now, um, in fact, the filtering algorithms that we see on the web are just technological impl- amplifications of these evolutionary dispositions so that we are now fed many, many more arguments to support what we believe and potentially I'll become more polarised in our beliefs. And this is going to be really hard to challenge. So, coming, so let's take the, the, the climate change issue. Unfortunately, the way... The way AI works at the moment with these filtering algorithms is this: it's it undermines the conversation. But one could imagine that from an early, early age, and I know this again is going to sound utopian and idealistic, but that from an early, early age, the ability of the AIs to troll uh, to troll the web and look for arguments contra and for can be used uh, by children from an early age, so that their the way kids interact with information is not in a pull and push, not as in just give me information, but engage with me mm. in some conversation, some rational dialogue, some dialogue. You could imagine instead of a search engine, a Socratic engine, right, that engages kids from an early age. You, uh, you can see in, 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 in politics classes, in philosophy classes, in, in, in training of medical students, you can imagine AI uh, you f- sort of uh, challenging the students about what about this? Have you thought about this, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. So that that's partially answering the question of how might the conversation be improved through the use of AI. But mm. I'm not. I, I, I'm reticent to say that you know this is really will really pan out because it's it's such an entrenched evolutionary kind of disposition to kind of retreat into our echo chambers, into our evolutionary bubbles. But the other thing I would also say is that communication is not just about rational engagement with with, with the facts and with argument, you know, this kind of uh, interaction with symbols representing the world, but also with, through other modalities like experience. Mm. And I'm reminded now when we talk about Peter Singer about you know the the, the argument, the, the well, the empirically validated observation that we are much more likely to give charity and to to, to give some some money to a, a deserving cause who's proximate, you know, living within our community or within our country, rather than someone on the other side of the world, yeah. because of the distance. Yeah. Well, maybe AI can collapse that distance. Yeah. Maybe coming back to VR, you, you know, it might be that part of our education, apart from an early age, we are invited to kind of ex- use VR to really empathise and engage with the hardship of others living on the other side of the world. Mm. Right. So, again. I'm trying to paint an optimistic mm, mm. rather than purely yeah, pessimistic yeah, yeah. picture because yeah. that's the only way in which we can resist the possible dangers and 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 and, and address the possible yeah uh, kind of polarization. 
yeah. beliefs. Yeah, I think that's. Yeah, I think there really is something in, um, especially the kind of VR allowing people to have access to. Because yeah, I get like it's one thing to be told that someone is suffering, mm-hmm. but it's another thing to. To be able to see them suffering, to be able to hear them suffering, to be able to feel, yeah, I guess. And mm. VR gives you more access. And I suppose the more access you have to something, the, yeah, mm. the more you should be able to accept that it's real. Um, but yeah, I guess that isn't always the case. Like, um, yeah. So some people maybe it's because they didn't have that at a young age um maybe yeah. they yeah maybe they've they're too um hardened in their ways but um yeah i think was there was there anything else that- um well i was uh, i think one thing i think maybe we've not touched on which might be of interest to your listeners is, is kind of some of the work i'm sort of beginning to look at at the moment which is about not just about the, the the possibility of machine consciousness. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the ethical implications of 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 what it would be uh, if machine, what it would be like for us, and yeah. the ethical implications of 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 having conscious sentient beings, mm. AIs, on, mm. on on the planet. And mm. um, tell me about that. Well, I mean, you, of course, you know, this is one of the great sort of, you know, mysteries, if you like, of, of how consciousness can emerge, if you like, from just physical matter. I mean, uh, essentially, I would, you know, humbly suggest that, that that as well as why there is something and rather than nothing are the two fundamental, fundamental mm. sort of mysteries of the universe, if you like. But, um, but look, let's put aside, uh, putting aside how one can explain as it were, as Chalmers puts it, the hard problem, uh, the, the the what P consciousness, the, the the phenomenological rather than access consciousness, mm. the, the what it is to feel, what it is to be you, the the, the seeing, the like. feeling. Mm. Um, put aside that issue. Um, let's 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 in, indeed let's also put aside. I'm I'm, I'm cutting to the chase actually here because I mean I could talk a lot about these <laughs> issues, but. Let's also put aside whether, in, whether even if one were to have an explanation, would imp- could one imp- could machines in principle be conscious? Mm. Um, my view is that, um, well, firstly, of course, we are faced with the epistemic barrier as to knowing with one hundred percent certainty whether there is what it is like to be a consci- conscious machine. Um, one can only look at. Uh, one might look at the the way the, the way the machine has evolved, the hardware architecture, um, according to some de- according to some theories of consciousness, like uh, integrated information theory, the extent to which information is integrated. So you could have ha- you could have pointers, mm. right? Uh, clues, both the re- the verbal reports from the machines of the of the by the way, of the distant future, as well as uh, facts of the matter about their architecture that they have a kind of um, feedback uh, they have these at the moment um, machines don't have the right kind of architecture to have a a sufficient degree of information integration that suggests that they're conscious so according to integrated information theory which is one of the most popular informational accounts of of consciousness the machines don't have the right kind of architecture but in principle they could have the right kind of architecture so they have the right kinds of reports they act as if they were you know in terms of the verbal reporting 
Um, let's say all those were in place. Um, of course, we still wouldn't know for sure whether they are conscious. But so I, I said I wasn't going to talk about the possibility of conscious, about the, in principle whether they could be conscious, and I end up talking about that. But look, let's really literally seriously put that aside for the moment. Um, there is a there will be, and here's what here's here's what in some sense the crux of the matter, in my view, there will be a strong commercial imperative to make AIs of the future human-like. We'll start to see robots, artificially intelligent robots, I'm talking about robots now, uh, um, you know, acting as carers for the elderly uh, and uh, acting as, 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 as sex robots, right? Well, I mean, uh, uh, functioning as sex robots. And so there will be a commercial imperative to make them human-like, mm. To give them, we're seeing this already. There's, a, there's Sophia the robot. I don't know if you've seen Sophia the robot. Look, look, look her up. She she shows facial expressions, and and because there will be this commercial imperative to make them human-like, uh, we will inevitably, the argument goes, um, treat them as if they were conscious because of the human tendency to anthropomorphize yeah. based upon very limited visual cues. Mm. Aside from the, so that's just talking about visual cues. Then you'll have the auditory clues. So I talked earlier about the need to enculturate machines so that their values are aligned. In fact, many of the approaches to this value alignment problem propose, directly propose that, that, that the machines interact with humans to observe and learn their value, mm. values, and not just through observation, but through questioning right. and instruction. So there is this enculturation imperative, there is this commercial imperative. And Possibly within a hundred years from now, or two hundred years from now, or even a hundred years from now, we'll look back and think, "Bloody hell! Of course they're conscious." <laughs> you, you know, humans back a hundred years ago used to seriously consider whether the machines are actually conscious. Mm. Our tendency to anthropomorphize, given these other imperatives, will mean, but possibly, that we will treat them as if they were conscious. Yeah. Then we'll be in a situation where we will be in a master-slave relationship with entities that we consider to be have an equivalent level of consciousness or near equivalent level of consciousness of humans, but we are treating them as, as slaves. Mm. And this will fundamentally uh, undermine our ethical sense of us as ethical creatures. Mm. You know, because we've arrived obviously at a state where we 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 uh we you know we 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 um we have certain kinds of rights, like you know the, the fact that humans should not be subjugated, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we will be treating other conscious beings as if they were slaves. Yeah, now, yeah. that's now. Now, I'm going to suggest another, uh, perhaps even more, apart from the fact that this will undermine our sense of it as, as ethical creatures. This, in turn, may then mean we treat other humans differently. Yeah, right, right. Because what if you can't tell? Well, if, not oh, even well, if you can't tell. I mean, even I think Kant makes this argument. That you know, once if you treat animals badly, it may affect the way you treat other humans. Yeah. So, if we, if we, in the same way that that that, that with kids, sometimes it's been suggested that kids who are exposed to a lot, addicted to internet porn, affects their relationship, their their, their relationships with other human mm. humans, right? The sexual relationships and 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 just relationships in general with other humans. Now imagine, you know, um, having intimate sexual relations with a sex robot that you've anthropomorphized, you think is conscious, and yet at the same time, you feel f at some level free to do as you will. Yeah, yeah. Now, how will that affect the way we maintain relationships with other, with other humans? Yeah. 
Um, in other words, there may be a kind of bleed over from our uh, from the way in which we treat these conscious ro- what seemingly we treat or think mm. of as conscious robots mm. with the way we treat other humans. Because mm. you're li- you're living two lives. Really. Yeah, and, and there may be this kind of dissonance. I mean, I just this is what worries me. So, mm. um, I mean. I, I, and it's not just, I mean, I, I, there are others, uh, Thomas Metzinger is another, who's a philosopher of mine who looks at his, um, works on kind of meditation and, and, and philosophy of mind. But someone like Thomas Metzinger, but I also, I would, um, I, I'm, I'm in his camp in saying that there perhaps should be some kind of, um, we should seriously consider the ethical question of whether machines should be designed to be human-like. That they, and I, th- I don't think this has been... It's not been high enough. It's not been high enough on the on the ethical agenda when it comes to thinking about AI and future AI than it perhaps it should be. Mm. Because yeah, that that would well from 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 what you've just said, it sounds like it would be one way of circumventing the issue of the the treatment of robots bleeding into the way we treat other people. If if we don't treat the robots as other people, if we always yeah, because. But even then, how how could you design an AI to be so non-human-like? Because if Kant makes the argument that the way we treat animals influences the way we treat humans, which I'm sure it does, um, how could you design an AI in such a way that... Because obviously the AI is going to be more like us than animals are in terms of our ability to socialize and our ability to understand culture and um have memories or what uh, actually animals have memories mm-hmm. what am i saying um but how like yeah i guess how i just yeah, yeah like how, I mean, how would you make an so ai with the example of I mean, with Kant's example but I'm, I'm not i'm not entirely convinced although i must admit i've not examined looked at the argument in detail so i might i may be saying something that's uh, anyway, that's regardless, not, that's it's not an interesting. It's it an were, interesting. But I'm not con- entirely convinced that really treatment of of animals really does bleed into the way we treat because okay. they because we don't assume that they have the same level of consciousness yeah. in general. Yeah. But in the case of in the case of let's say okay let's take the example of uh, uh, a carer robots for the elderly. Now the commercial imperative to make them human like would primarily be fueled by the realization of the developers of these robots that the elderly will. Uh, in addition to the physical function, in, in addition to them being supported in their physical functions, like changing and bathing, etc., that they would want, they would want those the carer to have some kind of they want they would want some empathetic engagement mm. w- with the carer robots. Now, why would there be that commercial imperative to have the ethic apart from the functional aspect of 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 of, of you know, changing and, and bathing, etc., etc.? Why would there'd be an imperative to make them uh, such that the elderly could empathize and feel like this is a conscious being helping them. And that's partly because um, there is this, we have an increasing number of elderly people and we don't have enough human carers available. And perhaps there are societal kind of, unfortunately, you know, the... The elderly are not as valued as much by the younger, so it's not like the, the people who are not incapacitated take time out of their busy lives to visit and to and to care for them. So, so actually, my view is the way to circumvent it is to make them is to not design them 
for those empathetic func em empathetic functions, but only for the the kind of physical functionality, and to make damn sure that the empathy, that the emotional needs of the elderly are catered for by real humans. Yeah, right. In fact, right. you know, mm. in fact, by designing them so that their emotional needs are, are are catered for by the robots, might then basically remove from humans the responsibility. Yeah, of caring for right? the elderly. Yeah, and in fact, yeah. I mean, look. This is a, perhaps somewhat far-fetched. It may well be that we have a kind of that there's a, emotional neglect starts to to seep in, or rather, a a we become less able mm. to emotionally engage with the elderly because it's a function that's been taken over by 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 by, by the robots. In mm. the same way that we probably are less adept at reading maps and navigating, yeah, because because yeah, that function is now yeah. outsourced to an AI. So, yeah. so that's how I. I mean, I. It, it, you can have here. You can have your cake and eat it too, but the right kind of cake. Yeah. The, yeah. the right kind of cake is that the 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 the, the robot carers just a, a, a serve the functional needs, but not the emotional yeah, needs. Yeah. Right. And if you don't, if you don't need to serve the emotional needs, there's no need to make them human like. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Um. I have one last question. Sure. Um. Okay. So before before we actually started the interview, um, we were talking about Sam Harris, and um, from what I've from the kind of YouTube and podcast stuff that I've heard from Sam Harris, he seems to be very interested in the um, the impact of meditation, uh, mindfulness, and psychedelics on our conscious experience. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I was just wondering. You you seem to have kind of dabbled in uh, in kind of stuff that Sam talks about. So can you talk to me about that? Um, I guess that yeah. wasn't ultra specific, but. I no, uh, um, I don't know too much about where you. What I, I, I'm, in some sense, all I can say is that Sam Harris has said it better, <laughs> which is. Uh, but what's your, what's your experience? Been? My experience. So I, I'm I'm a, I'm not uh, as it were an extreme sports meditator. I've not spent, you know, months or or even been on that many retreats, um, um, but um, I, I I have ex I, I've. Ex Experienced enough of meditative practice to appreciate the benefits it brings to my to come out of everyday life in terms of the usual. And I know this sounds all very kind of these phrases are hackneyed and cliched, but being in the moment, being present, uh, not being distracted by thoughts about the future and the past, etc., which is well understood to contribute to well-being. And it's no surprise that meditation is a a foundation stone of many therapeutic practices. Western psychotherapy mm. practices. Um, so, I mean, there is that there is that issue, and we know that you know from clinical trials that meditation leads to stress reduction, which improves health. But that's one aspect of meditation. I mean, the other, in some sense, uh, let's say, more the the, the deeper uh, well, one of the deeper reasons for why one might wish to meditate is to kind of explore the nature of the self. And consciousness, and to, um, well, again, this is this phrase has to be understood with some caveats, and maybe you don't have the time to go into the caveats. But basically, to um, through meditation, one can undermine the illusion of a self and an identification of a illusory self with thoughts and a sort of attachment to desire, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, I mean, I, 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 
I'm in very much in agreement with Sam Harris, which is that the that through meditation, um, it's one can not only um, become a better ethical person, uh, but also uh, but also um, I think it reminded me of he had an interview with um, and your listeners should really check someone out called Thomas Metzinger, okay, who's a philosopher of mine, but also looked at, at meditation, who said. Um, and Thomas Metzinger said, "Well, if you're a if you're a researcher in consciousness, then you're not really a researcher unless you've really introspected on the nature of self and mind through meditation and indeed through psychedelics, because I mean psychedelics and the use of psychedelics um, can dramatically deepen and, and, and ex, uh, uh, the insights one might gain through years of meditation." And the idea is that you might use psychedelics and then follow that up with meditation after the after the use of the psychedelics and before the use of psychedelics. Mm. Um, so, I, the, the, it's it's there's almost there's I feel like we could spend another two hours <laughs> talking about meditation and the use of psychedelics. But maybe, I mean, maybe uh, if some of you listeners are interested, again, from the point I, and here now I'm talking about from a philosophy of mind point of view. From a really, from an understanding the nature of consciousness, the nature of the self, free will, etc. I think um, I would recommend that some of you listeners engage with some of the of what Sam Harris has, talks about in his podcast and in the Making Sense series of podcasts in his book Waking Up, but also with Thomas Metzinger uh, is somebody I, w- I, w- I would recommend. But mm. um, yeah, I mean. Um, in, you know, in some, I mean, there's also, of course, I mean, when it comes to psychedelics, uh, what I'm going to say about psychedelics is, in some sense, not that it could be understood as what you might say about meditation in terms of, in terms of how it, in terms of the effects that it has on the brain. Mm. Um, but just uh, again, just, uh, I mean, I'm mean, just like a sort of a short course, a very quick summary. Um, and by the way, you, some for listeners might also be interested in looking at the work of Michael Pollan on this on this on this topic. But it's it's fairly well. It's not. It's it's there is a lot of research into what's called the default mode network in the brain, which is a sort of, in some sense, where our, our different areas of the brain where vile different areas of our brain whereby our sense of self is constructed by the integration of different sort of streams of processing. And what psychedelics have been shown to do in in, in research that's quite new, um, and to some extent what meditation enables one to do, is to um, quieten this default mode network. And and thereby, uh, sort of as it undermine that sense of self that is generated through the this default mode network. Now what's also fascinating, and here I'm talking about the therapeutic uses of psychedelics, is that it's it's suggested that many pathologies are a result of an over rigid default mode network, mm. an over rigid sense of self, PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder, OCD, uh, chronic anxiety, effectively, after all, a lot of these conditions are the hallmark of a lot of these conditions are habitual patterns of behavior that are destructive. Mm. Our patterns of behavior define who ourself. 
if one can if one can quieten that sense of self and and it will start from provide a, a fresh canvas upon which to generate new patterns of behavior that's way of under, that's one way of undermining these pathologies by the way this also applies to everyday life you don't have to have a pathology you may have certain um, instinctive uh, reactions to certain stimulus that cause you anxiety the moment you've kind of are able to intervene between the stimulus and the response the the, the, the easier it is to to undermine the anxiety you feel as a result of the of the response so so psychedelics and meditation have been used have been argued some evidence suggests that it 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 quietens the default mode network and therefore undermines the sense of self and allows you to explore new patterns of behavior. Yeah. The analogy, I think, I think it's an analogy due to Michael Pone, but I can't remember, was you imagine, you know, you go to the top of a mountain you, and you ski down the bottom and you keep going into the same tracks. You keep going down the same tracks. Um, taking psychedelics or long-term meditation provides a fresh covering of snow. So you can explore different routes from the peak of the mountain down to, down to, to base camp. Mm. So, so that's, look, there's a lot to say, but that just gives you a flavor of, of, of meditation and psychedelics and the role they play both in our everyday lives in terms yeah. of breaking certain harmful uh, stimulus responses for pathologies, but also um, as suggested for a kind of deeper insight into the nature of mind and self and indeed free will. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, oops. Um, I think we're at ninety minutes. So, I mean, I'd love, I'd love to keep talking. I'm sure. I mean, the topic of free will, we could, we could have an entire conversation, an entire episode about that. But I think I've taken up enough of your time, Sanjay. So thank you so much for coming and sharing all of this. Um, I'm going to listen back to this because I feel like there's a lot, lot to learn, lot to think about. Um, and yeah, thanks. I hope, I hope you enjoyed. Uh, thank up. you, Alex, for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure uh, because it's not so often that I get this opportunity to have such a, a discussion with someone so well informed as yourself, oh. and, and 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 to have such a uh, flowing conversation. It's been a real pleasure. So thank thanks you for so inviting much, me. Thank thanks. You.